Right then, back with episode 15 now of the Midnight Pod and I think our oldest guest so far on the pod, um, we have Nick Atherton on. Um, and how do I know Nick? Well, I'm sure we'll dive into that, but basically Nick works in M&A, so mergers and acquisitions. Um, I found with one of the pods I put out a few weeks ago at this point, which was like not relevant at all to like e-com, business, digital marketing, didn't get as good a reception as previous ones. And I was like, fuck, okay, people are actually interested in like e-com, building businesses to sell, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I thought Nick would be a good guest because we go back about six years or so, maybe even seven at this point. Um, but also, yeah, like M&A, super interesting space. It's actually how I like first got exposed to like business and shit, I suppose, like seven years ago on that placement when I was wearing a suit and pretending I knew things. Um, not e-com specific, um, but involved in a bunch of different things. And yeah, I just think it'd be an interesting episode for our listeners who are used to kind of more e-com side of things. But I think you bring like a more mature and experienced perspective <laughs> to things it'd just be good to chat about what you do basically and a bunch of other shit so I guess first question like usual and Tokyo's going mad is just really I guess give us a, a rundown of kind of your background and what you do and what you do currently and then dive into a load of shit yeah so um, today my main role is I run a corporate finance business which sounds really boring but actually you know, there's a lot of fun to it so mm. essentially most of my day is spent trying to sell people's businesses um and the sectors vary from really tedious stuff like cleaning businesses or security businesses to actually quite cool stuff like tech businesses or software businesses which you know recently we've gone into like much better sectors where the multiples are a lot higher which is good for me but also you enjoy it a lot more i think when you like the sector so i cut my teeth on things like surveying businesses architectural practices um you know engineering is now a big sector as well but you actually get to see some quite cool stuff when you go around their amazing factories and see them making huge sea jacks that they're going to put out at sea to build like wind farms and all that Mm. stuff so it isn't all i mean of course there is a lot of stuff that's pretty tedious it's like you know you're dealing with lawyers and accountants a lot which you know i know that you you don't particularly enjoy um, yeah. You know, you, you're essentially like, the, you are just the middleman all the time. So I think, obviously I built it from scratch. I started when I was 25, I'm now 38. It was really tough the first few years. I mean, I regretted it, I think, pretty hard those years. I, I had to move home, uh, live with my mum because it was going so badly. I mean, I didn't do my first deal until the fourth year of owning more foes. So it was a real tough slog to get yeah. it off the ground. I mean, the the kind of the lead time for an M and A deal can be easily two years. So, you know, when you start these things up, you're so naive. You think you can do one in six months. You yeah. Know, you think everyone's going to use you, but I mean, the client base we've got now is fantastic. There's loads of you know you have a great contact base and you have a great reputation. So actually, we're more choosy about who we take on to sell. We don't just sell anyone. You know mainly we're interviewing them actually when we go to a pitch it's not them interviewing us because yeah. you've got to work with these people on a real intense basis sometimes as I say for two years and it's the biggest thing they've ever done in their lives selling their business it's mm. more important than you know anything else they've ever done get married well I mean Probably maybe kids fun. is more important but you know this these are huge decisions it's usually an older man you know it's some bloke in his 50s that's about to make 
five, 10, 15, 20 million quid. I mean, these are crucial moments of their lives and you're basically holding their hand for two years, going through a pretty emotional process a lot of the time. As you know, you know, you get close to the line on something and then it flops. People yeah. get very stressed and very yeah. upset. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a good journey. We're, we're, I still feel like we're just getting going, to be honest. We're still growing. We're still getting asked to pitch on bigger and bigger things, better sectors all the time. So I'm quite excited about the future. I mean, I don't want to do M&A forever, but it's, you know, it pays the bills and it's, it's quite good most of the time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so Morphos, um, don't know if I mentioned that in the intro, that, that's the name of the, the, I guess, a you call yourself a boutique firm? Yeah, we're a boutique. There's about 12 of us if you count the non-execs. Um, most people are self-employed, which is a much better model in M&A because you really are on peaks and troughs all the time. Sometimes we can be super busy, sometimes we're not that busy. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the people who work for me also do other things. But that's good. Some of the people who work with us are also clients. So of my four non-exec directors, we do deals for three of them. Um, yeah. And they're all cool guys. They've all made a lot of money. So they're very good mentors for me. Um, and they're great for the other staff in the office. Yeah. Going back prior to that, thing, I don't know if you told me about like four years and shit previously. I was pr- always probably thought you were just doing well. but um, No. What did you do? And I'm asking like the cliche questions. I think it'd be useful for people watching. Like, yeah, sure. How so, did you get into that from like uni and stuff? Yeah, so I got. I, I I did the only thing I liked at school, which was economics. I did it at uni. My parents made me go to uni. I didn't probably want to really, but mm. you know, I said to my old man last night. I just thought it was a complete waste of time. Actually, looking back, but I should have just gone and got a job. It would have been much better for me. Mm. I, mean, I just spent three years smoking weed and drinking booze and <laughs> yeah. all the other things, right? So looking back if I'd just gone straight into the bank that I'd done an internship at before I went to uni I think that would have been a better training ground for me yeah I went back to the bank after uni and it was really good um only because I realized well I realized it was Merrill Lynch but I realized I really didn't want to be a banker Mm. like I hated it but it was really good that I found that out at an early age you know I didn't really want to work for a big corporate and you know the chairman of Morphos is obviously your uncle Ollie um, yeah, everyone's going to be writing in the comments that I'm some fucking silver spoon cunt now which I'll just, just no, say no, I've never been given any money from him or anyone else no, in my so business although I'm currently how, trying to raise a seed round <laughs> that's how we obviously know each other um, he um, was the one who steered me in the direction of working for a small company because I just learned so much more working yeah. in a four man company um, it, I worked there for two years it went bust in 2008 in the recession I learned so much about going, you know, the business going into administration, him not being able to pay anyone. Yeah. Owing See, loads, I know about that as well now. Owing loads of money to the bank. I mean, I learned how to not run a business. And I think that was one of the biggest lessons for me was realising actually we didn't need a big swanky office to make money. We didn't need to employ loads of people to make money. You know, that flexible model that I learned how to operate, I think has really saved more foes because there's been times since, you know, in the last seven, eight years where we've had really bad years. You know, Brexit was a terrible year for us because no one makes any decisions for 12 mm. months or 24 months. You know, COVID was okay for us, but not great. Very hard to generate new deals in COVID because you can't go out and see anyone. Yeah, People don't tend to sell their companies via Zoom meetings. You know, they want to see you make sure you're not going to mess it up. So 
yeah, before, I mean, economics at university, it was an okay training ground. I guess it gave me some skills that I use today. Not many, I don't think. Yeah. The accountancy was quite useful. And accountancy is so dull, but you need it. You need to understand it. Yeah. If you don't, you suffer. Yeah, very true. And then how did you choose which businesses? Obviously you said like some like non-glamorous ones. My experience of it was like F&M, so F&M, sorry, FM, facilities management businesses, which is like cleaning and shit. Was that by chance or was that like, I'm passionate about fucking sprinklers. I want to help people sell businesses. So your uncle Oliver is very well known in the facilities management sector. Right? I probably he, didn't know how he is, the, he is the He is one of the kings of facilities management originally. So he founded one of the very first facilities management businesses. He sold it to um, Carillion, who obviously you probably know the name. Yeah. Um, you know, then he sold another one to EC Harris, which is a big property operator. Um, so he's well known in that space. That was just where the contacts were. You know, so, you know, we tapped up every facilities management that he knew, every facilities management company we knew. And yeah, it was, it, they aren't the sexy sectors. It, it is dull as dishwater. It's the people who maintain the lift, the aircon unit, the, the boiler, the people who clean the floors, the people who clean the windows. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a big building like this, on the 15th floor, they're doing the people who come up and down, the abseilers that are doing yeah. There's good money in this stuff. All but the shit that happens that you don't really think about. Exactly. Fire extinguishers. One of your first experiences at Morphe's... Get onto that. Was, yeah, we can talk about that. But, you know, one of my big sales that I did five years ago was a fire extinguisher business. You know, CFS, they, yeah. Yeah, they sell almost every single fire extinguisher in the UK to Tesco, Sainsbury's, all these people. They're buying tens of thousands of these things off you. They're getting it in from China and selling it for a pound more than they bought it for. I mean... You know, which is not too dissimilar to some e-commerce models, is it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, facilities management, that led to also the property sector, architectural firms, surveying practices, things like that. Again, it's kind of very steady stuff. You know, it's very male-dominated industries, you know, people, old boys that have been doing it for 50 years, right? Yeah. And they're kind of built towards a sale usually it's kind of a medium kind of exit but they've usually done quite well out of the business over the years you know and they want out when they're 60 right they're usually because they want to go and do something else because they're so bored of it yeah so what would a typical deal size be and be then because i feel like the reason that's an interesting question is the problem with that e-com and digital marketing and like this online stuff particularly because of social media is that everyone thinks that every business either doesn't exist or sells for a billion quid do you know what I mean it's like this culture of oh, I'm going to sell a business for a billion quid because they read about these tech unicorns sure but when I first got exposed to all that it, it kind of showed me how there's like this mar like I guess mid-market more normal yeah. more attainable I suppose in inverted commas that can still set people up for life but like yeah, yeah of course like, I mean what sort of deal size when we started off you know if we made someone a million pounds that was a good result um but, you know, there's two things to that is that it doesn't mean that they're, you know, they're dead. They, they've got the million, they can reinvest it. You know, they can get a yield on that. They might go and start another business and, and go again in something that they prefer. They might buy 10 flats and, you know, you just don't, you know, it doesn't mean it's the end. But we, yeah, I mean, look, in my opinion, if, if you make kind of five, six, seven million out of a deal, 
you know you never have to work again in that situation if you invest it yeah you know you can easily give it to a fund manager that will make you six percent seven percent a year after tax right so life's pretty good you know usually at that stage as well these people don't have mortgages they probably have two or three houses and they probably have other things you know going on so in my experience you know the people who are making 50 or 100 it's very very rare it doesn't mean that their lives are so so much better you know it Mm. it doesn't even it doesn't necessarily mean they're happier either from what I can see you know which is another point a lot of people drive themselves into the ground to make so so much money that they don't need you know so a lot of the time when I sit down with someone who's selling I'm saying look actually you know they sit down and tell you an unrealistic figure that they're like aspiring to get but my my advice would be look take what you you know a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush yeah I learned that the hard way last year yeah and that's the big lesson of this is that if you could bank 10 you know it doesn't mean that your career's over it doesn't mean you're retiring does it you know you can you can go again and do something different you know you're de-risking you're de-risking everything in your life aren't you yeah for every guy that's gone out and made a snapchat a, a twitter a gym shark you know there's how many have failed hundreds of thousands have failed right hmm. you know so are those people a thousand times happier than the bloke who's made five or ten out of something I, I yeah. don't think they are you know I think having that much money is not always a good thing right you kind of you become a target in all sorts of ways yeah your, fam- your family become a target you know I think being anonymously rich is a much better better life than being a famous billionaire yeah to be fair I often like discuss this with mates and it's like yeah firstly that I think being like anonymous to an extent maybe not anonymous but certainly not famous mm. but then also yeah it's like often you put so much pressure on well, I, I certainly do and have in the past probably more like, oh, I need to make a hundred million quid blah 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 mm. and I joke about it because people have been on this podcast and that watch it that will, that will say I want to build a business and sell it for a hundred million quid but they've not made 50 grand yet and they're still talking about making 100 million quid from a business whereas actually like you just said yeah three to five million quid and you're set for life like actually absolutely if you invest that maybe even two if you for invest, sure if for you sure. live fairly yeah. simply well but you know you can leverage against those those investments to do other things I mean you know that these days there are lots of clever banking products out there where you can you give an investor X million. It doesn't mean you, they'll lend you half that back in at a very cheap rate, like a mortgage. Yeah. They'll treat it like a house. You can take equity out of these things and set up another business or, you know, there's all sorts of other options. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're making that kind of money, a couple of million quid, you know, you're, well, you're already in the very top 1% in this country, I'd say. Well, zero point zero zero point yeah, one percent. exactly. So, you know, it's not so bad, is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's just funny because people lose perspective, I think, because of social media. And it's always people that have never done anything that are like... I think they not do. done anything, but like people that are, and myself included, a bit more in the past, probably to an extent now. I was like, oh, I want to make a billion quid or whatever. Yeah. When and they haven't are, made five million yet, including myself. That's, you know, if I, on my LinkedIn, I don't follow any of those Zuckerberg, Link, um, Gates, the Bezos kind of people. I, I just think that's, that's a different universe, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm. and you know I don't also want to be those people I don't think it's that fun you know actually when you do you watch Succession 
on Sky. No, I'm not seeing it. Succession's there. I'm sure a lot of your viewers watch it, but it's about them basically based on the Murdoch family, mm. you know, and they are the most miserable bunch of backstabbing rich wankers you can ever There's imagine. There's a bloke that owns a son in it and, and he owns uh, Sky yeah. and stuff. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the misery that it causes that much money is, you know, you wouldn't wish that on anyone. How much are they worth? Like billions? Oh, yeah. Ten billion? Tens of billions. There's private jets everywhere all the time. Massively unhappy, divorced, in and out of rehab, drug addicts. It's just... Yeah. Yeah, fuck that. No love at all. You know, zero compassion from your parents. It's it's not a good place to be, I don't think. I mean, I, you know, I don't imagine being Elon Musk's kid is a good is a good life yeah true I mean you might think it is this kid's but, called like XYZ or something well so you know oh, can you imagine your first day at school and you're called XYAZ whatever <laughs> yeah yeah just because your dad's like a freak you're never going to have any proper friends you know you'll you'll never be able to just walk into the pub and watch watch the football anonymously right your whole life is then some sort of Kardashian soap opera isn't it yeah it's absolutely horrendous yeah, very true. And most of these businesses then, because obviously, yeah, maybe I just wanted to get him on because you've got a lot of experience, more than most, I guess, to be fair, but particularly in, in acquisitions and like meeting a lot of successful, rich, whatever people. Mm. Um, and all these businesses, are they typically, like, are they profitable businesses? Because obviously, like, a lot, often in e-com and, like, digital online stuff, people are trying to sell businesses, like, reading about businesses that, you know, sell for 10x revenue and they're burning money like tech usually. Yeah, so the, va- the vast majority of the businesses we sell are, are profitable businesses that, that, you know, the profit steadily increases over time and people buy them for a multiple of the profit plus the cash they have in the bank, you know, uh, or less the debt that they have, you know. Yeah. Some of them have obviously got debt, but, you know, that's a tip. And you, you can pretty much work out the range it's all to do with whether they're you know if they've got one big customer that always makes them worth a lot less so that's why an e-commerce business is generally good because there's so many customers you're not reliant on one person but a lot of these you know facilities businesses or property businesses or you know those kind of sectors can be very reliant on contractual cycles which is not good so you might have to renew that contract every three years and it might be a third of your revenue and mm. if, you know it might be half your profit and you might lose it to a competitor because they go in slightly cheaper then your business is worth half of what it was so a lot of these exits are around you've got to plan you've got to really plan so when you've just signed your big client up for another three-year deal that's when you want to sell you want to sell three months after that you don't want to sell a yeah. month you don't want to send sell a month before the tender's in you know because people will discount the value massively so my job is always to structure the deal to protect the seller as much as possible to make sure that, you know, he gets most of his money or she gets most of their money in at the beginning of the deal. You know, you don't want to be waiting three years for half your money because once you lose control of the company as well, you know, who's who's to say that this new person's not going to completely ruin it? Yeah. You know, and if they're incentivized not to pay you as well, that deferred element why would they run it well if they owe you half the money? So, you know, our job is about protecting the seller as best we can, working very closely with the lawyers to draft very tight agreements, you know, around that stuff and being ready to sue if you don't get the money, you know. So that's what they're paying for. 
with someone like us is you know we've been through it 50 or 100 times right yeah and there are guys on my board that have sold businesses you know that are in the hundreds of millions now i haven't but there are guys that have sold you know things for 80 or 100 or 200 million so we've got the breadth of experience and of course i'll get there at some point when i'm a 60 year old man of course that'll be the case but my game is it's a bit like an estate agent you know when you start out you sell the little flat yeah in the crap end of town you know you don't work for savills on the first day well you do if you're some sort of posh kids parents you're into kids. Eating, yeah. yeah but you don't sell you don't sell the richmond green house or the Hampstead heath house yeah. in your first month you know it takes years to get that kind of trust and those contacts doesn't it to you know to be the partner at night frank you know you don't see people in their 30s doing that you see them in their 50s doing that. Yeah, I follow some guy actually on Instagram who sells those super prime houses. I actually messaged him to come on the mm. podcast and very surprisingly he, he replied, but kind of unsurprisingly he said, well, I would, but this is not worth my time because you don't have a property audience. But yeah, I, I was thinking that because it, it just looks like a sick job, but I guess he's probably been in the game like 20 years. And yeah, exactly. Um there was another alternative for me so when i set up morphos i also did a surveying masters at reading and it was part-time mm. it was so boring it was absolutely the most boring thing i've ever done one of my friends taught me into doing it but i did it in case morphos went bust i could always go and work for savills or night frank or, or do you know what i mean be a surveyor and just sell houses and buildings and look one of my best mates sells buildings similar job to me he brokers big office buildings instead of companies and he's doing really well you know he worked for someone for seven eight years set up himself he literally sits at home out of his bedroom two kids and he, he's he's coining it now selling big buildings yeah as you know, the middleman is it the most exciting job in the world i don't think it is but yeah to be fair though i, th- I think n- nothing is that exciting all the time <laughs> is it like no, even like e-commerce and, like people think e-commerce is glamorous or whatever but it's like fucking looking at a screen 90% of the day for me I mean I don't know it anywhere near as well yeah I don't know anywhere near as well as you or your audience probably but it it seems like doing lots of very simple things very very well a lot of the time right yeah you're doing so many little micromanaging things all the time aren't you and just constantly yeah on the spreadsheets and yeah I suppose the difference from like e-com is it's very fast moving like you know you change them at this afternoon on your ads you should see the financial difference tomorrow mm. whereas what you do like you're saying like fucking potentially a two-year deal timeline i can meet people and they may not use us for five years you know yeah. i can meet someone you know at one of my networking events and he might only be in his late 40s or she might i have to stop saying he but it usually is a he you know but or she might be like look i'm only you know 42 I, i'll sell when i'm 50 but keep in touch or you know so there's mm. long long lead times yeah and you've got to keep in touch with them at least once a year i'd say otherwise you know they will use someone else if you know someone else comes along yeah so. and then there's a lot of things i want to come on to but like typical multiples because again in ecom there's massive debates around this but i think probably because it's a newer industry like is there like a typical range in terms of like EBITDA multiples and so what affects sw- that yeah so a small business that's kind of reliant on one customer you probably say it's worth two or three times it's it's pre-tax profit 
you know, we use the term EBITDA, which I don't know. Some earnings before might... interest, tax depreciation. Yeah, your earnings. Yeah, exactly. Your EBITDA. But, you know, a simple way to say is that is your pre-tax profit. Yeah. You know, a kind of two or three times multiple for those things. That makes those businesses very hard to sell. Because if you're the owner, you can imagine sitting there going, someone like me comes in and says, I'll give you three times for it. He's going to say, well, I may as well just run this bloody thing for three times. I'll yeah. just run it another 10 years. I'll get my kid in to run it, you know. The, the more interesting ones, you know, a five or a six times is when they've got really good customers. They're doing something a bit different, maybe that's, you know, more statutory. So like when people have to have it, you know, that's mm. always a big thing. What, like sprinklers? You've got to have sprinklers. You've got to have a lift that works. You've got to have a boiler that works. You've got to have... The lift you never know, fucking works here. I think one's broken too. Yeah, it. exactly. So that kind of compliance, statutory-led stuff is worth more. And then... You, if you want to get eight, 10, 12 times, it's got to be sexy. It's got to be doing something really that people want. So probably some tech element to it, some software element to it to get that high. It's probably got to have a, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to be a larger business. It won't be relying on any, any one customer. Mm. It'll be high. The other term we use, which is very important is recurring revenue. So this big insurance broking business I sold in February, it was the biggest deal we've ever done he had a 97% recurring customer base. So every year, 97% of his customers just renew the insurance. Yeah. He's not the insurer. He's the middleman. He's the broker, but people love that, right? You know, that's, you're not mm. going to, you're not going to be able to ruin that very easily. That's what I'm trying to do with this next bloody business. Subscription. Yeah, exactly. A subscription type model. That thing that people just, it goes at a bank account. They don't really care, you know? Yeah. Um, and those things are worth a lot of money, you know. And that's why if you can get a statutory compliance-driven business with a lot of high recurring revenue, they're always worth a lot more than someone who's just reliant on one or two customers, something pro project-led businesses. People are like, oh, you know, I'm doing up this shop or I'm doing up this building. You know, they're businesses that people hate because yeah. the margins are very thin. It's, you know, Carillion some of you might know the story you know it's one of the biggest building firms in the UK it went bust mm. didn't it last two years ago or three years ago now I mean they were just you know they went bust because they weren't pricing their contracts right because they're it's such a competitive space they're making two percent on a 400 million pound project the only something small has to go wrong right yeah. there's a few little fuck-ups and you know your bum's out the window suddenly you know you're working for free or actually you've paid for the privilege of building this hospital. Yeah. It's a disaster. And, you know, Carillion was a, was a, was a amusing story because a lot of boys at Morphe's, a lot of the older boys um, have worked for Carillion or sold companies to Carillion over the years. So it was a bit of a shock when it went down. I mean, Robin, who you know, Robin Booker, um, oh, yeah. is yeah, paid a months. pension by Carillion. Now, luckily that was in a separate pot. You know, it's protected um but you know that was half of his annual income that pension so i think when it went down he was pretty worried you know mm. he's, he's a 70 year old guy kind of relying on that Old pension school, yeah. yeah but yeah multiples really vary i mean i've never sold what i'm told by some of the people i work with in some of my other businesses i'm involved with that some of the software businesses that they bid for go for 20 times earnings 20 times ebitda you know 
I think that's usually pretty crazy. I mean, obviously, I'd love to own one that's yeah. sold for that set, but I've never done one more than kind of 11 or 12 times. Yeah, I, I was with a guy recently. I won't say his name, his business, but he told me, and it's, well, maybe I shouldn't say. Actually, I won't say, but he's coming on the podcast shortly. But he said he sold for a pretty healthy multiple. Um, and that was an econ brand. But yeah, it was like, it was like, it was the higher end of what you're saying, but it was like nine years old. Whereas a lot of econ brands and myself included, like the brands I had last year were only like two years old, not even that. So obviously like nine years, had like wholesale as well as online. It was so they're still they're still selling on the profit though they're not they're not being sold on revenue well yeah i guess yeah he he said it was on profit yeah, yeah. so it, it was a, i'm sure it's pretty healthy looking at their previous numbers but mm. yeah it's interesting because you obviously read about these i guess like unicorns i mean like gym sharks and econ example obviously but then you read about these fucking tech and, and econ brands that sell for like 5x revenue and they're losing money and it's like I mean, yeah, at that point, I suppose cool. the business or brand is, is viewed as an asset itself that is going to be worth more to the next bidder. So it kind of doesn't matter that it's losing money. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 maybe weird. there's cross-selling opportunities to that customer base. You know, mm. if they can start selling them all the stuff that they sell elsewhere, then maybe it makes sense, right? Yeah. It can be tax reasons. Sometimes these big American companies, they're making so much money that spending money on acquisition is actually tax efficient. You know, take notes. You know, it's they're kind of strategic buyers usually, and that's that's always what you want when you're selling your company. It's a strategic buyer, which means it's a buyer that's going to pay more than anyone else because they're desperate to enter the market either for something that they're not doing or somewhere that they aren't selling things. You know, Mm. so they're getting into the UK market. They're desperate, you know, Um, or they're desperate to get into this watches thing or whatever it might be. They're not doing it. You know, they know that they can sell their bracelets to the people buying these watches, right? They know that they can double the revenue overnight. You know, they also, they've got economies of scale. So they've got amazing deals with the advertisers already, you know, that, that they can just kind of, your thing, they can suck it up, take out a lot of the costs as well. So you'll have a lot of costs in your business that they just won't, you know, they already have. Yeah, they already have a finance department. They already have a marketing department. They already have kind of all that back office f- stuff that you then don't need anymore. So they're, you know, they're working out. They're they're doing their maths in a different way to us. I mean, that insurance, yeah, bi- exactly. the insurance business we sold in February, you know, eleven or twelve times EBITDA. That buyer will sell for at least twenty times when they sell. They're an American insurance brokerage. They'll sell for 20 times at least. So they view that as cheap, buying something at 11 or 12. Is that just a cultural thing or just because the business was so strategic? Because of the 97% recurring revenue, mm. literally. It's just like you're investing in, in something that's just like a money tree. But why wouldn't they pay 20x for it? If they're going to sell it in the future, 20x, I mean. Oh, I see. Well, because like, they're the... a lot, lot bigger. Yeah. So that, you know... They, so the, he's a friend of mine now. He's a guy called John, but they've made his business thirty percent more profitable overnight. What, the day they bought it, the next day it's thirty percent more profitable. Mm. So they're already doing their maths in a way that we aren't. You know, yeah. their view of it is well, we paid twelve, but really we only paid eight or nine because we're already making thirty percent more. You know, happy days, right? Yeah. So 
yeah the strategic buyer is the one if you can mm-hmm. find one so following on from that then um i think a lot of people listening probably learning quite a lot which is good um yeah moving away from econ for once which is interesting but also being able to compare it so in terms of like fees and shit then so how does that all work as like a broker because certainly for me and a lot of people watching they think think of a broker they probably think of property by default yeah is is it similar to that is it different yeah it's quite similar so um the only difference is we don't work for free up front so i won't work for someone unless they pay you something every month or certainly a fee to get you know to do all the work in advance so i'm happy if i've got a third of the overall fee and maybe beforehand the other thing i have in the contract now which you know this is after years of learning is having a bought fee so that means that if we have an offer in that is along the lines of something that we've you know discussed that would be acceptable at the beginning Mm. you know if we've said look broadly speaking we're aiming to make 10 million for you we've had offers in at kind of eight nine ten million and he decides or she decides to take the business off the market then we expect them to pay us an abort fee which is kind of half or a third of what we get if it if it's sold oh shit quite a bit we need that because otherwise we'd go bust is that know? if they take it off the market as well as if they go to another broker or can they not do that they anyway? can't go to another broker for two or three years when they sign our contract but if they do sell they have to usually pay us at least two percent of the of the transaction and then we have a ratchet where if we make them a lot more money than we agreed at the beginning you know the target price then they may end up paying us as much as 5% of the whole deal. But they're happy to do that because they've usually made a lot more than they thought they would at the beginning. Mm. You know, so everyone walks away pretty happy at the end in those situations. Yeah. You know, they might have to write us a check of 500 grand, but if they've walked away with 12 million when they thought they were going to make 10, actually they don't really give a shit about the fees. You know. Yeah, true. Did you ever get screwed in the early days then yeah. prior to having tighter contracts and shit absolutely screwed a number of times um, so I'd say a couple of the big times were in the early years when I you know when it took us almost four years to do that first deal um, I did a deal in about year two but we didn't get paid on it because our paperwork was so flimsy the buyer managed to wriggle out of paying us and he ripped us off for about 30 grand now at that time that was a huge amount of money for us i was absolutely mortified and he and he literally he he was a ruthless bastard i've actually sold him several things since and made a lot of money out of that guy but because i got my paperwork right and i made sure i made it up in future deals that i did with him you know but even though he was such a cunt well yes he was but i tell you what he taught me so much you know, he went on to make 40 million quid, this guy, out of fire alarms. He made, out of domestic alarms that you have in your house, he had, by the end, he had 5,000 people, customers like you and me, mm. just paying him 150 quid a year. You know, 5,000 people. And it was just, a, it was a great business. You know? Only 5,000? Wait, so five. So... That's like 600k a year revenue. No, more, 750. So, sorry, so... Um, that was so he's making about 150 pounds per person oh, okay yeah. but it was a great it was a great business by the end some of them were bigger customers probably but it was you know he sold it to a private equity business for 40 million last year mm. incredible business you know yeah 
Um, That's a pretty big one. He, but he's a ruthless, ruthless bastard. And yeah, he obviously taught me a lot in the early days about getting your contract right. We had lawyers then draft up contracts and agreements and it was just, you know, not, it hasn't, we haven't been screwed that badly since. There's a couple of times that people have tried it. Um, There've been times where you work for two years on a deal and then the biggest problem you have when you're selling a business is what they've told you isn't true. They tell you they're making two million profit, they're not. So that's why you have to protect yourself because Mm. when you get into due diligence, which is essentially people checking the documentation, people checking that what you've told them is correct and lawyers and accountants be pouring over the accounts and all these things. If you haven't told them the truth, then the price goes down. It doesn't go up, (laughs) you know? So, you know, then the seller might decide, well, I'm not selling it then on that basis. You know, so then you might have been in, you, you know, you might have worked for two years for, for not very much. So at that point, you also need to be paid something. Otherwise, you know, you, you just, your business won't work otherwise. So would you always have a retainer from day one plus a bullshit fee, whatever you want to call a it? A bought fee. A bought fee. Um, is that how it works? Yeah, it has it to work like that. I mean, the, the only time that I'd make an exception is when I've worked with someone before maybe it'd be cheaper the second time around because you trust them. Yeah. You know? um, occasionally I act for buyers. I don't like act, acting for buyers because I think it's a lot harder to, to do deals. Um, when you have a seller that's motivated to sell his business, it's much easier to, to, to get a deal done. Mm. You know, when you work for a buyer, they can be a lot more choosy. They might not really know what they want. They might be using several other brokers to look for things. So if someone else brings in something else that's better, they might just buy that, you know, they might just find a business internally that they like, you know, and you, you don't get paid. So I try and avoid working for buyers. There's a couple of exceptions. There are some big private equity firms in London that I work for. And they're probably my best clients in a lot of ways because all I ever have to do for them is one meeting. I will introduce them to the target that they're trying to buy and they will take it from there and do everything. They do all the work. Mm. so I won't even hear from them until they've done the deal and then they'll just wire me the cash and I say to people that's the kind of best hour you know of your year if you get one of those away yeah you know and I've done several like that and so of course if that buyer phones and says he wants something I will put the time in because he's serious you know he's very very they're very wealthy they act very quickly they've got a very good in-house team that can do the acquisition so they don't need us yeah so a few questions then what's the biggest deal you've personally done yeah the one in February where it's 11 times changed hands that guy will make about 15 million pounds probably that was one of the biggest That's what about the 40 so I so. didn't do that transaction he 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 sold his business for 40 okay. and I read about it in the press I sold him three acquisitions in whilst he was building that business. The first one he didn't pay me for, but he paid me for the second two. Yeah. Um, he sold to a big PE firm last year for, for that for that amount of money. So, yeah, so they're the kind of ranges. I've, I've been close to being doing some bigger ones. I mean, 15 doesn't sound like a lot, but when you start off doing things for a million pounds or two million pounds, it takes a while to get to that level. Mm. And that, what would an average be? And, and how many deals 
through like morphos yeah in, so in like I, I, I counted that i've done about 50 over the 13 years That's so right. it's about yeah. four a year but bear in mind we did none in the first four years you know an average year might be five or six um we also raise money for people now which is another big string to our bow so you know startups like yourself or, or businesses that just need need to raise money to grow we're, we're quite good at that now so we've got lots of good contacts with lenders and you know finance businesses or just private individuals that are wealthy and so a big part of my career now is i've made people i've made a lot of people a lot of money right and there's at least 20 guys out there that i can call up and say look i'm raising money for x you know some business that you might be starting or some business that you know one you know another contact might be starting and say look would you like to put some money into this we think it's interesting you know and so that is a newer uh, string to our bow but it's quite exciting yeah cool so to simplify then well to make it to give an example then so if, if i came to you let's just say hypothetically i have this business which i'm i want to sell for 10 million quid thereabouts i'm just sick of it i want to sell it i'm the seller you're obviously the broker like what's the process from right at the start to selling and and firstly how do we know each other then do we usually not know each other like do i approach you would you approach me so i suppose Um, that's the first part and then what happens so almost all the businesses we sell are via referrals so someone that we know you know will introduce us to someone that they know yeah um so I'm selling a healthcare chain at the moment of several healthcare homes, uh, you know, retirement homes, and they are just friends of friends. Um, but it's quite hard to win mandates if you just don't know them. If you're just complete random, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to win that mandate in my experience so the referral thing the networking thing is is the way to do it but essentially we come and see you as i said we spend quite a bit of time getting to know them and interviewing them so we really want to know what they tell us is correct yeah especially on the financials so we we pour through their accounts their management accounts you know we want to see all the kind of stuff we want to know all the skeletons before we agree to potentially selling them because that's how the pitfalls later on you kind of want to close off as many as those you can there's always surprises you know there are always things they don't tell you but the majority of the time if you spend a couple of months getting to know them at least you've got a much better chance of doing the deal um you if they're unrealistic on how much money they want we we'd walk away you know if we think that they are going to be too difficult to work with we also walk away um because you know our time is limited it's not it's different from an e-commerce business where once the platform's in place yeah it kind of it goes viral doesn't it but our we're consultants at the end of the day our hours in the day are our hours in the day you know so you can only spin so many plates you want to you want to back the right horse one that's going to get over the line so yeah so on a for the seller we talk to them about have they been approached in the past we start forming a list of all the companies that might have asked if they could buy them we do our own research. We've got several researchers that will go and put together a list of maybe 100 buyers. We then whittle that down probably to 50 with, with the seller. And then we send them a, a document, you know, a t- an anonymous teaser document, 
bit like your flyer that you're putting out for your business, you know, a couple of pages. Try not to give away too much information, just literally enough to either get a yay or nay. Yeah. On. The people who say we'd like more information, they sign a non-disclosure agreement, then they'll get a kind of 30 or 40 page pack, which is the all, you know, song, you know, all, all bells and whistles document, along with all the financials that they might request. Then we might meet 10 of those companies. You know, obviously in Corona, it was all about Zoom meetings for those. But, but you know, you might do three days of, of you know, it's literally a parade. You know, you do the same meeting 12 times, which is my seller and me talking about the business, doing exactly the same meeting. You know, it takes two or three hours each time. You might do three or four a day. Uh, for th- and then at that point, you'll ask for offers. You know, you'll want some indicative offers from, from the people who are really interested you know we'd hope to get at least kind of three or four offers on the bet on that basis um and then you pick the one you want to run with um the buyer will then insist on exclusivity which means you can't talk to anyone else until you until you've either done the deal or the buyer's legally withdrawn then it gets then the interesting bit really is the is the lawyer's takeover and they negotiate um, the share purchase agreement, which is a which is a massive document, seventy pages, eighty pages long, easily. You know they can be arguing about that for months. These lawyers, you mm. know, obviously will be involved as well, and that will be coming back and forth for months on end. And you just hope that the business that you're selling keeps performing in that time. Yeah. The last thing you want is a dip. You know, and you just hope that your seller keeps his cool because it gets emotional, it gets stressful. People can get really upset, you know, at the end because they can see the money, but they can also see. That's what I felt last year on a small scale. Yeah, exactly. Um, And as I said to you at the beginning, it's the biggest moment of their lives. You know, maybe, you know, with the exception of the kid or whatever, but, you know, it's pretty much, you know, there's not much that tops that, is there? Because their whole life is then, you know, sorted or, or they think it is yeah. so and then yeah literally you'll get to the kind of we call it the completion when the, when the share purchase agreement is signed that is when you literally you know you go to the pub and you order a bottle of champagne and you down it and <laughs> you know the funds flow that's the big day when the funds flow which is usually about a week later literally the lawyer calls up and distributes the money and that yeah you- so on that, so maybe it's just me being a fucking weird entrepreneurial type, but I reckon a lot of people are listening because like you obviously read about XYZ business selling, like particularly people watching probably like e-commerce brands that have been acquired, whatever, like movement watches, 100 million, fucking mm. loads of examples. So two questions off that then. Well, actually first question is, so, so how long typically from like a general handshake, this is what we're gonna try and do. Like you agreed to buy my business for 10 million quid between that day and the share purchase agreement. How long does that typically take? At least a few months. You know, it's very, very common that that may be, you know, offer agreed in writing, which is like the heads of terms document, we call it, which is probably six pages long, which just spells out the basics. You know, I'm gonna pay you 10 million for your company. I'm gonna give you 8 million up front. 
and you're going to have to do this, this and this to get the next two million. Mm. You're going to have to work for me. You're going to have to re-sign these contracts. You know, you're going to have to do this. You can't work for anyone else for three years, all those kind of things. And then, yeah, at least a few months. Honestly, when I sit down with the seller, when we're having our first meeting, I say the process is at least a year. And if we do it in less than a year, I'm delighted. If we do it in less than 18 months, I'm usually pretty happy, to be honest. Do people get excited on the day that a deal looks like it might happen? Or are they usually, usually they know it's going to take a few months? Most sellers are very um, naive. They haven't been through the process before. They, they They wouldn't even know what these terms mean. They have no idea that the lawyer, you know, what the lawyer will do or you know, that they might, um, you know, that they might spend 12 weeks negotiating a document. I mean, you've got to realise lawyers aren't just doing your deal. You know, they're working on 20 other deals, right? So they're not... Yeah, and they're fucking slow. They're slow and there's no incentive for them to really do it any quicker because often they're billing by the hour. So Yeah, I think in my very limited experience, I feel like lawyers lawyers and accountants are living in a different generation. I think some of it's like I was looking at this myself for this new business I'm running and I found something called C Legals mm. which you may or may not have heard of but it just yeah. seems so modern and quick yeah, compared absolutely. to like going to a fucking big city law firm or whatever yeah absolutely I mean for when when you when a startup situation like yours of course you want to keep the cost down as, as low as possible so but also just speed yeah speed um, I think look when you're selling something for a lot of money, speed is not of the essence. It's, it's getting it right, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you, you don't want any any fuck-ups, right? You want it to say what it says. You know, there are all sorts of things in the SPA that can come back and bite you if you don't get it right. So often people are arguing about things called warranties and indemnities. Yeah. Now that is a big part of the agreement. So if you're warranting something or, you know, it, it, that you're saying something's correct and it turns out not to be, you know, the buyer can come back and take the money back potentially. Mm. So you want to be watertight on these things. Yeah. You know? And those, those warranties can last for years. They can be seven years of Fuck comeback. That. Yeah. You know, so I don't know if you've read much about Michael Lynch autonomy and yeah, Hewitt Packard. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Hewitt Packard are coming back at him on the, on that sale that he did to them. You know, they're suing him for, billions of dollars right so effectively you got paid for selling the business and now they're saying what you said wasn't true so they want the money back essentially allegedly allegedly yeah Yeah. it is a nightmare so his his financial director has already pleaded guilty in the united states and is serving a prison term right is this like super dodgy then well that's what's been i think he has been convicted actually that the u.s government are trying to extradite him to face Jesus charges Christ. in the US, yeah. yeah. So Michael Lynch is a billionaire from this, but allegedly there's been a lot of wrongdoing on the sale. Mm. But obviously, you know, we, who are we to know? But, what you know, the smaller point is with the SPAs, you pay the money because you want that high quality advice. SPAs, share purchase agreement. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, cool. And then, so funds flowing, as you said, because... Um, I'm just asking the questions that I think anyone will want to know. So like someone sells a business for 10 million quid, you sign that agreement. How long is that period to someone? And uh, how long is that period between actually getting the money then? And, yeah, then, usually, and also, like, the, how, is that literally just 
You just check your online banking one day and it's in there. Usually the money will be there within five working days. I mean, if it's a lot of money, maybe it's slightly longer. Generally, like the money usually is coming from like the US or or Asia or Europe, you know, or, or somewhere that mm. it's not just like sitting there. Yeah. It will always go to the lawyer. The lawyer will then disperse it. And literally he will have a list of shareholders he's got to pay out. So if which is quite often the case, there are multiple shareholders. Yeah. They will literally pay each of those the individual amount that they want, you know, that they deserve. And um, then... Or deserve earn. Yeah. And it's like more nitty-picky questions. I'm just interested. Yeah. Is, is that... So if I sold a business, in, say I was a UK resident, blah, 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 capital gains tax, I, am I getting that money net of taxes or am I getting that money and then have a tax liability? No, you get the gross amount and your tax liability sits with you. So you then need to sit down with your accountant pretty sharpish and work out yeah, what and not spend all of it. What not to spend, yeah. Um so obviously in the UK we have something called entrepreneur's relief, which means that if you're a director of your company, you've had it for more than three years, um, and you own more than five percent, the first million pounds you own uh, you earn from a deal, from a sale, comes out at ten percent tax which is really good yeah. it used to be the first 10 million but Rishi Sunak changed it last year which was very annoying oh, yeah, um, not, so it's not, now not like Rishi Sunak needs to fucking sell a business it's now 20% um, of the next X million above that so you know your tax bill is probably kind of 20% you know flat on a big sale yeah. kind of maybe slightly less which is obviously a lot less than you know PAYE so you know one of the other bits of advice we always give clients is that building up the cash in the business is, is a really good idea because you don't want to pay 50% income tax on your on your cash if you can leave it in the company because that will be added to the price at the end oh, right, yeah. so and that can make a huge difference you know for, for people now, if they built up a couple of million pounds in the bank, is that always the case then? So you'd have the business purchase price plus the excess net cash, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We call it cash-free, debt-free. So the the excess cash minus any debts in the company. Yeah. That also includes the working capital. Working capital is the amount of money it takes to run the business. Now yeah. that's obviously a hard number to define exactly. The accountants on both sides will argue that right up to the deadline day. Mm. Um, usually it's a couple of months cash, you know, a couple of months of costs to run the business. That's, that's kind of the approximate amount that I always tell sellers. Yeah. They often think that's that that's their money, but it isn't. You can't leave a business that so hasn't got any petrol the in the tank. capital would be taken off the net amount due to them from the business bank exactly we, we I, I describe it as like the petrol in the car yeah, you know? yeah like no, if exactly. you, you can't yeah well, you I, can I learned that the bloody hard way last year twice yeah. yeah and a lot of people watching this probably haven't learned that yet but it's very true in, in any business probably even e-coms actually probably arguably very cash flow positive if nothing goes wrong because you get paid in three days from Stripe yeah which is amazing hands. whereas a lot of businesses I spoke to a guy yesterday runs a drinks company and they're on like net 120 days with all their suppliers so they could be making a million quid profit but fucking have no money in the bank basically well some of the biggest failures we've ever seen are companies that spend the money that they get in an in in advance um you know and then the contracts are pulled 
and they don't have the money anymore. They've spent it, if that makes sense. So, yeah. so there was a big American company. It might have been that time when you, actually when you were interning for Morphos. I can't say that. There was a big American business that, that ended up going bust. They were one of the richest families in New York and they had a contract with a big shopping mall in the US. They had a thousand shopping malls and they were paid quarterly in advance by this um, shopping mall owner. And that was a lot of money, right? It was fifty yeah. million dollars. Why did they pay like that in advance? Well, fifty million dollars a quarter in advance, right? Of course, then this company, my client, um, were using that money for other things. You know, they weren't <laughs> lifestyle. It was lifestyle. Private, private jets. jets they they were, you know, you, they were at the front row of every basketball game. There were private jets, there were boats, there were all sorts of things you can imagine, right? Boats and hoes. Um, so, you know, but it turned out to be a really sad story. So when that client pulled the plug on them, which clients do, used another provider, they couldn't afford to pay back that money. They couldn't afford to provide the services, if you yeah. see what I mean, because they'd spent it all. And... Um, they went from being one of the richest families in New York to being destitute, you know, terrible. Um, the son, who's only a couple of years older than me, but, actually, would they not at that level have, have like any sense of risk management? Because even I now, <laughs> twenty six, would be like, "Fuck, I'm not, I'm not blowing on lifestyle until other shit's taken care of." Well, you'd think so. So the great granddad started the business in like the 1930s, built this amazing business. It was the biggest cleaning company in America. The granddad takes over, who then really messed it up, I'd say. Who then, the son was earmarked to take it over, who was slightly older than me, but he was a drug addict. He was a complete nightmare. But he was growing up in that money. Yeah. And he actually committed suicide in the oh, end. Shit. Took a drug overdose. Um, so it was, you know, it's one of those really sad stories about kind of mismanaging money. Mm. But, you know, th- that kind of third generation is always a nightmare when, when they've grown up with that amount of wealth and it's, it's a very common tale yeah they've never had to earn a penny they live a life of Riley they've become useless you know they're useless people because they've got nothing they've got nothing to give anyone, give anyone have they never mm. had to work a day in their lives there's a lot of that around around this part of South, yeah. South West London sure not a lot but you know statistically not a lot but there's still quite a few um, I want to come on to a different thing in a minute but so have you ever been to like a big post-acquisition fucking piss-up party? I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What's been like the the biggest slash most memorable one? Um, Because you, you read about this shit in like billionaire biographies and stuff. Um, nothing bit, I mean, no, it's not usually on that scale. Usually there's several celebrations over the course of the following year. And it's a combination of them taking us out to say thanks, us then taking them out to say thanks. Mm. We might do a trip somewhere. So, you know, I might invite them somewhere to like the Hong Kong Sevens or I might invite them to, you know, the Gulf at Augusta or I might invite them to the ashes or the lions you know that's a typical thing i'll do for someone when they've they've paid me a significant fee you know i, I don't just take them out for dinner i'll take them on a good thank you trip <laughs> yeah. it's slightly harder these days because of um entertainment tax rules but even if i end up paying it for it myself I'm, I'm usually like look these people they've been good to us they've looked after us you know and it's that old thing you know they don't forget 
that you've made them a lot of money. You know, they, if a deal's gone well, they're generally a pretty good friend or contact for life. They'll refer you to other people that they know. You know, rich people, successful people, usually know other rich, successful people. Yeah. You know, the amount of contacts we've had just because, like, their mate at the golf club or the sailing club or golf, the, crest, football, the tobogganing club yeah. or whatever they're doing, they'll be met, they've got people that are just doing things you can't imagine. So that's the best reference you can get. Yeah. But some pretty wild times at the Hong Kong Sevens or Tokyo World Cup. You know, you I know I bumped into you there. You know, yeah, two, two t- years ago, almost to the day actually. Yeah, they tend to be the bigger celebrations. Yeah, geez, I wasn't celebrating an exit there, but it's still a good time. <laughs> I think I was like nine pints deep by two p.m. <laughs> it was very aggressive. Couldn't see any of the rugby, but that was a good time. Okay, so interesting first hour, this dog's trying to eat my shit. I just want to bring it back to how we actually met them because I think it's relevant, but also, yeah, just be interesting. So, yeah, when I originally dropped out of uni, which I think the actual first podcast like last year I did that spoke about all that shit prior to the fucking Neon Beach scandal got taken down because, yeah, my flatmate Fred didn't want it up, etc. So, yeah, I dropped out of uni when I was 19 after six weeks and then when I did a placement with Morphos which is how I met Nick and yeah but basically the first time to be honest that I'd been exposed to I guess entrepreneurship and business other than just like reading bullshit online and put a suit on and fucking like I was commuting every day and shit um there's some, the photos, there's some great photos on there. Some great Yeah, it was about it? a five month period, I think. I think it was like kind of just maybe November to March or something. Four, four or five month period. But yeah, I probably cite that as I definitely wanted to be an entrepreneur prior to that, but I didn't really know. I never really met anyone that was actually like making any money. And, and I think I've said it before on another podcast. That was probably the first time I thought, oh, you don't have to be like a, a rapper or a footballer to make money. Sure. In a way, which I think it's probably true to a lot of people. You think if you're not like a, an A list celebrity, then how can you make money? But I mean, maybe slightly different now because social media is fucking everywhere. But yeah, kind of like what you were saying, like that's the first time I probably realised like the, the value in like knowing people and just networking in general. Because I, I remember actually famously another guy that we were working with called David, who I don't think you work with anymore. But I remember throwing throwing a business card across the table because I had like a business card and I, was, like, I thought I was a baller and shit. Just like getting all the all the fancy corporate stuff, wearing a fucking suit every day, which I would never do again. Um, I threw a business card <laughs> across the table to someone in a meeting, and he like took me aside after. It's like that's not how you do this like net this meeting people thing. <laughs> it's just a funny story that I remember. I didn't know that. I remember being so embarrassed afterwards. He would have been horrified know. by that. Right? Yeah, he was. It was <laughs> yeah. somewhere in in Barclay Square. Which oh god, right been to many times since loads of bloody nightclubs and shit around there and sexy fish and stuff where I've mm. taken girls on overpriced lunches in the past but yeah it was just just an interesting time because you don't realise like how little you know about things until you know a little bit more and obviously I'm still fucking learning shit in the entrepreneurial sphere but back then I knew literally nothing about anything yeah and I it was just it reflecting on that time it's quite funny now yeah, I mean, I think we obviously probably struggled a bit with you because we didn't know, we didn't really think it was what you wanted to do, you know? It wasn't. Yeah, and it wasn't. It was play- But it was still interesting. But it was, 
it was, you know, it's it's hard when people obviously aren't quite right for the corporate finance world because mm. they could do want to do something completely different. But you kind of want to give them the best experience that you can. Yeah. And, it, you know, I did a similar internship with a law firm. I remember when I was 17 and I absolutely hated it. It was, a, you know, one of the best internships I ever did because it put me off doing law. It was called, it was a shipping law firm. It was the most boring thing you can ever imagine. Yeah. They were talking about this boat that had crashed off the coast of Scotland in 1992. And they were still arguing it in 1998 or wherever I was there. No, it was so boring. Yeah. I was like, I cannot imagine this being my life. And I think it was kind of similar to you. You, you were so bored by it, weren't you? Or unimpressed. That, but it... it I, I was probably impressed by the people I met. And that's the point yeah. I made. I was impressed by the people I met and the things that opened my eyes to. But yeah, I, I knew prior to that, I didn't want to do, I guess, a corporate job. And even shit like wearing a suit. I mean, look at me now, wear fucking orange trousers around the house. Yeah. But yeah. I think certain people love that shit. You know, go to fucking Durham Uni, study philosophy, and then it's just not me. And it's probably not a lot of my audience. And, and it was kind of no, then no, and there no. that I was like, I want to make a lot of money, but I don't want to do this corporate stuff. So I'll, I'll have to figure out how to be like an internet entrepreneur or whatever. Absolutely. Which is probably a realization that a lot of people, mostly watching this podcast, have at some point. And then they set out on figuring out how to actually do that, which I'm still fucking figuring out. Had a little taste of it, but. Well, I think yeah. what I admire about you is that you've gone off and done something you actually want to do. You haven't just done something that you thought you should do, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, a lot of my career has been doing, is doing a job that I think people probably expect me to do. You know, it's a money making job. You know, it's a, it's not kind mm. of, you know, it's probably not, the job I dreamt of doing when I was a kid right but it's a job that is okay it makes money and I don't hate it but you're I think you've generally gone off and done something that you really actually love now, I know it's been a rocky road recently but you know overall you're delighted that you've gone down this road aren't you as opposed I to I couldn't imagine doing anything else yeah, yeah exactly it feels definitely like the right thing and it makes the challenges more palpable yeah because no. you think well this is what I'd be doing anyway. But, you know, we've had probably, we have probably one or two interns every summer. Yeah, you, I was you, that. You stayed a bit longer um, than most. I'm in, you know, I'm in contact with some of them. Um, one of them still works for us and she's probably our best employee. Yeah, girl, yeah I know she is. Yeah. girl called Eve Kilgar. She's 27 now, unbelievably, which, I, you know, it's just crazy because she's been working with me since I thought you know almost a baby but she can now at 27 almost run a deal without any help from me almost I'd say probably 90% she probably doesn't realize it that yet but she's kind of that's the kind of training period that it mm. takes you know to get to the point I don't think she's capable of winning business yet she couldn't go and win a, a pitch I don't think without me being there but where once I give her a deal, she can pretty much do most of it now from start to finish. So, but she's quite similar to you. She doesn't actually enjoy M and A at all. She just does it for the money and because she's good at it. She also she yeah. has a um, she has a business on the side which is making wicker baskets. McCrabby, I think it's called. Or I think you mentioned this before. Yeah, she spends yeah. her Saturday and Sunday, and if she's watching this, you know she'll be laughing at me making baskets for like 30 pounds you know for a basket that takes her for four hours to make but she loves it so i said look you, you could do both 
And I think that's the kind of great thing about your generation, well, still my generation, is that we can have lots of jobs. We don't just have to have one job now. Yeah. You know, you can do lots of things at the same time. You know, as long as you pay the bills, there's no reason why you can't run an e-commerce brand and do something else on the side, you know? Obviously, like a podcast. Yeah, exactly. Which and is a lot more work than I thought it would be. Yeah, but, you know, back in, back in the day, your dad, my dad, they had one job, didn't they? You know, yeah. pretty much. Definitely know. a generational shift and a cultural shift. But we're so lucky, I think, we've got an iPhone where you can walk around. Just You, you don't ever have to be in the office. You can just be walking around on that thing, kind of doing what you need to do. You know, certainly in my job, I don't need to be in an office ever, really. Yeah. Apart from to go and see clients. I just need to be on the phone all day. Yeah. Um, but looking back to that internship, I mean, the work we set you, it's, it's very boring. It's very tedious, that research kind of role. Yeah, because I hadn't, didn't really fucking know, know how to do anything else, did I? I mean, I remember sitting in the British Library researching <laughs> businesses, but it was... I think, yeah, the point I'm trying to make on that, amongst others, is, yeah, the actual work itself might have been very tedious, but two things. Firstly, I got to go and try commuting and wearing a suit in central London for the first time. And when you've never done that before, that's fucking cool and exciting. And I remember going, I literally would walk around Mayfair taking pictures of cars. Yeah. And I still got pictures of those on my Instagram if you scroll back to like 2013, 14. And that was so exciting because I'd never seen that shit before. Like, you'd. Whereas now you could go down Sloan Street, see a fucking LaFerrari. It's just, and it sounds flippant and stupid, but when you've never seen that sort of stuff, it's you amazing. Think, oh, like it's a different world. Oh, there's like other possibilities, and like I don't have to do this boring thing and whatever if I don't want to. But then also, yeah, it was meeting people and firstly learning how to speak to people and meet people, which I think I'm pretty good at now. To be fair, which could be better, but I've got a lot better at just even doing shit like this podcast you know with new people it becomes a fucking process and by definition you get better at it but also seeing what other people are doing because by default when you grow up pretty much up to the age of like 21 usually when you sort of finish uni or particularly before uni for like 18 your life and your lifestyle and your network and the people you know and the things you see about life are just given to you you don't have you basically have no choice in it so if you grow up in like me the north of England in York go to a state school very fine life like happy and shit but that was what I saw whereas if you grow up in fucking Africa that's what you see and that's your experience do you know what I mean and the other extreme is if, you know if you grow up and go to Eton school and you're surrounded by fucking parents billionaires the whole time that's what you see and I spoke about the problems and the pros and cons of that with Iman on the previous episode which mm. have gone out by now but yeah it's just interesting and then when you actually get to start doing your own shit whether it's on an internship or, or not doing your own shit, but you, you get to step out of what you were previously doing. And for most people, that's going to uni or getting a job or doing an internship. It's just interesting. And you, you probably don't have the perspective on things at the time to appreciate the insight it gave you then. But then looking back now, it's like, I almost think if I didn't do that internship, I mean, I probably would have got, got into entrepreneurship anyway, but like that was certainly the first it comes back to like the whole experience breeds confidence thing. Like I met people that had made millions building businesses themselves and they weren't famous. So then it was like, Oh, I, I remember a few months later launching my first clothing brand. Literally after that in March, 2015 Gentry yeah. club, fucking yeah. shit brand. But I probably wouldn't have done that unless I'd met someone that was like talking about it or whatever over a few drinks. Totally. So that's kind of the, the interesting side of that. 
And also as well, I think what you're saying about like brokerage and so on and so on, which is why I want to get you on, is I think there's a problem which is caused by social media of everyone thinking they have to be an entrepreneur, they have to be, I don't know, like the number one guy at the top of the business or whatever it is. Whereas actually a lot of people could probably be more happy and make more money and do better in like either A, like a corporate job, which was never for me, or like B, potentially being like a broker like yourself and, and probably make a lot more money in um, rather than trying to build like any business or for most of my view, it's probably like an e-com digital marketing business because they feel like everyone on social media is doing it. Whereas most people on social media that are talking about doing it are probably making no money or they're hiding all the problems they've had, which I was public about my recent ones for, for that purpose. And yeah, I just think it's a conversation people probably need to have with themselves because no one posts about being an M&A broker on social media, but everyone fucking posts about running an e-com brand or drop shipping or having an OnlyFans account more more relevantly <laughs> recently. And if you can fucking make money from that, then fair play. But Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's kind of the point I wanted to make on that. I think the M&A thing, you know, it's not super sexy, but the exposure you get to businesses is invaluable. You know, mm. you, you see so many different businesses, you know, you people phone you up with all sorts of like inquiries. Oh, you know, I had one yesterday. Oh, a friend of mine's got 21 BMW garages he wants to sell. Can you come and see him? You know, you just never know where it's going to take you, which yeah. is which is the upside of it, you know. You know, you go and see this guy, he's got 20... That's impressive, right? He's got 21 BMW franchises. You know, he's built from nothing. This guy from the East End, you know, he's obviously a bit of a jack the lad and, you know, but good for him. He didn't go to private school. Like, he's a kind of... Just a worker. Yeah. And he's, he's wise as, you know, anyone. And he knows, you know, he's kind of... Knows how to make a pound, right? Um, yeah. So the thing with the M&A thing is just... You do see a lot of interesting insights into wealthy people how they build businesses, the mistakes they make, you know, is is the important thing. And actually that makes you a better business person, watching them, you know, yeah. watching what the, what the good ones do versus what the really bad ones do. And the real pitfalls, I always think, when you're running a business is spending the profit too hard along the way, you know, which is a very classic mistake people make. And this isn't a, a slight against you, but... I definitely you know, did that. To an extent. But, but, but lots of people in my go emails. out. Lots of people go out and buy the Range Rover, the Ferrari, you know, first class around the world. When actually, if they reinvested those profits, they would be a lot, lot richer. Yeah. You know? There's a balance. You don't want to just, you don't want to live like a pauper when you're running a successful business. You should go on holiday. You mm. should have an okay car. If you want to fly, you know, in a nice way, you, you should. But you shouldn't be kind of pretending that you've sold the business when you haven't, you yeah. know, you know, living like someone who's made 10 million when actually, I think it's social media. Yeah. I think it's ego. It's social media. It's keeping up with the Joneses. As we yeah. say, you know, the old, you know, it's my mate's got a Ferrari, so I've got to have one. It's, it's all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I've got a client that you, that you know quite well. I won't, I won't mention him, but you know, he, um, he went out and bought a, you know, an amazing supercar, um, yeah. you know a year before he was having to sell his business um, paid kind of seven figures for the supercar and had to sell it unfortunately for a lot less oh, than right. he paid it's, for it yeah I thought it was someone you else know. yeah, yeah I won't mention his name but he um, he thought he was going to sell his business for a huge amount of money he didn't 
ends up having to sell some of the things that he's mm. thought he was going to buy. And it's kind of a sad situation, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know... There's levels to expenditure on supercars. Yeah, absolutely. I've never owned one. I own a very simple car because I try not to be flash. I don't... I'm not a flash guy. I don't own a flash watch. You know, I have some property and I, I live quite a flash lifestyle, you know, so I, I like going on holiday and travelling. But... When you walk, when I'm walking around, you will never see me in a Gucci jacket or a Rolex oh, yeah, watch. Fuck that, Christ. Well, I like the, I did like the watches, but <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's so true. Like it, it's particularly in the e-commerce and digital marketing sphere, and the whole like online money, Wi-Fi money, what the fuck you want to call it, like forex, e-com, digital marketing, drop shipping, all this sort of stuff that, that's come, that's become cap- like possible in the last sort of five years mainly there is a massive culture of that and I was yeah I was one of those guys to an extent that I was doing very well for like three years but yeah um, you know I mean I liked cars so I bought some cars I, I don't regret that but the problem is to an, to an even bigger extent you get guys that don't even run businesses and are making 20 grand a year buying Stone Island jackets for 600 quid like that's mm. a, that's a thing I've for never sure. done that. So it's all relative. Like I was making two, 300 grand a year when I was 22. So I was buying stupid cars and shit that were financed, heavily financed. But yeah, it's just an interesting culture because prior to social media, I don't know if that would have been as much of a thing or if it's because of like the fact that people can actually start a business now and genuinely make really good money pretty quick because of like, you know, Facebook ads, TikTok, whatever. Like so, so much quicker now in like e-commerce and just genuinely online. But it's always like humbling when, when, when you then meet, you know, like someone that's actually made a lot of money, like sort of 10, 20, 30, 50 million. And they're fucking, they're always wearing an Apple watch. And then, so I've started, to, I mean, in the past year, I've done that for many reasons, but you, I guess it's part of growing up. But Absolutely. It, I think it, that's it is an point. interesting process. It is growing up. You don't want to show people how rich you are. It's, it's not a good trait. People don't like you for it generally. Mm. You know, it's kind of, you want to be anonymous as you can, as we said earlier. Um, You know, it's interesting that the car thing always reminds me of footballers, right? Specifically premiership footballers. And when when we grow up, most boys that play football want to be a premiership footballer and play for... Yeah. for Chelsea and earn 300 grand a week but I think it's I think it's one of the worst lives you can imagine well, it's funny you say that because we went to Chelsea the other week and you said this mm. so yeah build on that because I think it's an I interesting perspective you live your life in reverse so you are super successful at 20 25 your career starts to fade as you reach 30 you get your last contract at maybe 32 yeah. you, know, you retire at 35 if you're lucky right and mm. maybe if you're lucky you bank some of that money you haven't wasted it all you know generally they're yeah. not that financially astute so they might have spent a lot of the money along the way waste a lot you know the smart ones put it into houses and investments there aren't that many smart ones mm. you know they generally end up pretty useless and unhappy in their thir- late 30s there isn't much you know there isn't much of a career anywhere else unless you become a manager like Gerard as well <laughs> You know, for every Gerard, there's 20 or 30 players in that Liverpool squad that aren't a manager. For every yeah. Carragher on Sky Sports, great job. There's 20 or 30 that, who the hell are they and what are they doing? Mm. And they probably didn't make as anywhere near as much money as you think, or they didn't save any of it, you know, because they were living yeah. the life of Riley, you know, and they had all the women, cars and champagne then, but 
suddenly in their 40s, they're pretty kind of depressed. Maybe they've got injuries, you know, they've got a bad back, they've got bad knees. You know, it's, I wouldn't wish that life particularly on anyone. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a happy life. I think, you know, your best years, hopefully, you know, life as you as you get older gets better. Exponentially better, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because you said that. I, I think, yeah, like probably like a lot of people, you look at like footballers that are fucking 25, 26 my age, you think oh, f- like almost like bitter oh, for fuck's sake, you know, that like someone like Jack Grealish is making 300 grand. Like, I'm, I'm probably terrible at it. Like, like a lot of people because of social media, you look at someone like that and think they're making 300 grand a week. But and I thought I was balling making that per year. But you've got a brain that ain't isn't going to fade at thirty. Whenever so, yeah. So when you Jack said Grealish that, retires, right? Jack Grealish is going to retire at thirty something, right? He, okay, he's going to be so rich it maybe won't matter. But you know, most of them aren't that smart. Most of them probably don't make great life decisions. Most of them have multiple wives. You know, a lot of that John money Terry. gambling drugs you know it's just the kind of spiral of decline usually when they stop and I don't imagine they live that happy great lives to be honest the smart ones go into management or 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 you work for Sky they probably have a good life because it gives them a purpose gives them something to do in the morning yeah you know get up and actually do something but the rest of them what are you going to do all day you play golf take the kids to school yeah very true I, I think yeah it's interesting but, but you're not 65 it. you're you're 35 it's, it's kind of a bit sad isn't it yeah because at least in entrepreneurship well just business and work in general but I guess for this audience entrepreneurship business yeah you would hope that you get ex- exponentially better of course and then therefore over the long term granted there's ups and downs you get you make exponentially more money as well more skills more contacts and more money for sure yeah so so just on that because it's a point I've raised in a few previous podcasts it's like I lost a load of money and I said well but the one thing I didn't lose was experience and contacts and, and that is very true um, and like luckily or fortunately is probably a better word I feel like I've built up a very good network for my age hmm. given it's one that I feel like I largely built that didn't have it when I came out of, out of uni in a way Um and yeah, like how much, obviously a lot of your shit, it works pretty much all network, isn't it? Um, yeah. And I think networking and having a network and just fucking people skills in general, kind of old school business skills, I suppose, I don't know where to put it, is, is something that, and myself included again, like this whole e-commerce online, you know, the Wi-Fi money generation, kind, I think, overlooked because everything's, you do all the shit online and even now like, I spend 80% of my time at a fucking screen and I'm very conscious of it like I'd actually be probably more beneficial if I went out and met at, at the minute like investors different people mm. potential employees all that sort of shit so like I suppose yeah in general I'm just becoming more and more aware of the importance of it and I think this generation doesn't understand it enough and by default because we're on social media and shit you, you, no one really has any fucking people skills anymore but obviously you particularly in, within Morphos I think are very good at that so like so how do you get good at that and what does that involve in well, your think, world I think people skills is quite a natural thing you, most people kind of have it or they don't you can get better at it by spending time around people who have good people skills I think that's how you do it you know if it's 
you know, and again, all due respect to people, developers, if it's 10 computer developers in a room, I don't imagine the chat at lunch is that amazing, right? Yeah. Whether it's 10 sales guys in a room who work for whoever, a bank or whatever, you know, their chat is kind of more interesting usually. It's funny, isn't mm. it? You know, they're telling stories, they're like telling jokes, they're, they know how to make people laugh. Yeah. And it gets people's attention, really. So for me, networking, I've always... And, you know, a lot of my friends and contacts will laugh at this. I've always based it around sport events. So, as you know, I'm a big Chelsea fan. I'm a big rugby fan. I'm a big cricket fan. I'm a big tennis fan. I, I like going to the golf, the horse racing, um, you know, all those things. And, you know, I'm not just talking about in the UK. I go all around the world doing those events. The people you meet at those events are usually, you know, pretty amazing. You know, you can meet, you, you just never know who you're going to meet. You know, um, so you might take some clients with you and you might meet some clients there, wherever it might be, whether it's the Hong Kong Sevens. But the people in the room at those events are usually pretty high end people. And you've just got to have the balls, basically, to go and talk to whoever you think might be useful to you. You know, it can just be very, very simple stuff. Just be like, you know, just go up to them and try and say something funny. And if they laugh and they want to talk, then you're away, you know, so... I was in an event in London at Berry Brothers a couple of weeks ago. Um, What's Berry Brothers? It's a, one of the most famous wine shops in London. That sounds they've, right. They've got two acres of cellars underneath St. James's and um, Mayfair. So it's incredible. It's it expensive real estate. Six floors down, they've got, you know, they sell all the wine to the rich people in London. They've got a very nice cellar. I was at an investment seminar, which was extremely boring, but it was only an hour so I sucked it up because I knew afterwards the networking would be amazing. And there was a guy there who'd built a business called Inspects and it's glasses, very simple business, mm. glasses. He's run it for 30 years. He's now, you know, for sure a billionaire from it. He's got factories all around the world. It's, it's on the aim. It's a really impressive business. And he gave a five minute speech, which I listened to, but afterwards they serve us some amazing wine he was the first person I went and spoke to. Only 30 of us. I had 10 minutes with him, got his business card or whatever, got his kind of mobile mm. number. And, you know, that's a contact you just never know, do you? Like, maybe at some point I can sell him a business. Maybe at some point he's a super rich guy that wants to invest in a business. You just never know where that conversation might go. But you've got to have the confidence to go up to these people because they are just normal people. Yeah. As long as you don't bore them. Like, they don't, you know, they don't, they're not, they don't want to talk about, you know, boring rubbish. You know, they probably don't even want to talk about their business. You know, so yeah. talk about something else. Talk about how good the wine is. Talk about how good the food is, what a cool place this is, you know, or where do you live? You know, what are you up to? Just treat them like a human. Treat them like, just, they're not super special. They much prefer that than if you're licking their feet. Oh, what amazing. Yeah, it's, I had a guy called Asher Grant on episode 12. It hasn't gone out when we're recording this, but it would have gone out by now. He runs some of the biggest nightclubs in central London. Mm. And that's what he said, because he said his black book, so to speak, so his network is incredible. Um, because by default, his industry is everyone's had a few drinks, which is, and, and he runs the show. He doesn't actually drink himself, funnily enough. But his point was, he's managed to befriend all these like super high net worth people like celebrities etc because he doesn't give a shit who they are really because by definition they're just another client as he calls them a customer on the day 
And actually that has then got him in circles where, you know, usually people are, can I have a picture of this box? Oh. Can I ask you about your business? And, and it's the same thing you're saying. It's interesting because, yeah, like, they're just fucking normal people at the end of the day. They don't. Like everyone has the they same. They never ask them for a picture. I mean, that's like just rule number one. Yeah. I remember bumping into Jose Mourinho um, in Knightsbridge in, and my girlfriend at the time was like, oh, go ahead and take a picture. He's your hero. And I was like, do you know what? I'm not going to take yeah, a picture. Yeah, fuck that. I'm not so going to ask him for a picture because it's not worth it. also he was like, if he says no, he's no longer my hero, is he? Oh, I hate it. Yeah, him. true. So I was like, actually, no, I don't want a picture. Yeah. You know, um, He's not my hero anymore, but you know, when I was a you know ten years ago, big Chelsea fan, he's our manager. Like, of course, he's yeah. my hero. Who's in that Roma? Now I think he's a pretty arrogant, average kind of guy. But you know, I was a kid then, right? Yeah, very true. So, two questions off the back of that, then. So, well, I guess the first one because I know a lot of people that watch this are like fucking eighteen to twenty-five, I suppose, and they, I guess don't have the credentials to A, be in rooms with, I suppose, powerful, impressive, wealthy people. But B, even if they were, probably wouldn't know where the fuck to start because they maybe don't have, you know, something to talk about. Like, you know, to those people, like, how do they network with... And it's a good question. Like, how does the average person who's, say, in uni or just, you know, 22 years old network with people that... That, that they want to get to know and I suppose I kind of think I know what my answer to that is but I'm interested to know what you'd say I think you know I used to work for a headhunt business headhunter business and, and the, the chairman of that was a very smart guy and he was a networking king and he used to tell me just to write down lists of people that you'd like to know and people that you'd love to know and people that you'd love to be you know and try and like reach out to those people and just ask them very simple like look I'm a young guy I'm trying to do this would you spare some time just to chat to me just give me 10 minutes you know for a coffee so Mm. people that you know right and then you reach out you know and you try and make everyone kind of come to the the left side of the list which is your contacts right yeah but it takes time you know you kind of have to build that contact base but you know you go to the warm people that you know first so you know your parents friends your friends parents friends your you know whoever they might be your just you know people you meet at parties people you you know you have to get out there you can't sit at home and do it you know you can do, you might do the intro on linkedin or, or whatsapp or whatever yeah but you got to get out there and see people and kind of at those events of course in your early 20s it's much harder you're not going to be the king of it then but you you got to get going then because the people you meet then in 10 years time they might be pretty useful you know it's a long road Mm. you know you can't view networking as a short term win it's a long term thing you know the people that are making money you know they might not make money for 20 years some of these people that you know but they might be super useful when you're 40 yeah very true you know so yeah so a few points off that Um, so, so firstly like do you think these like these skills to go and do it is more important than the credentials you might have in the first place or do you think if you're trying to speak to interesting people or like get someone to respond to you on LinkedIn Twitter whatever that you need to have done something for them to even bother 
Like, what's the most important? Well, thing? I think I think. Look, you, you go after the people that are that, that are slightly known to you. You have some yeah. connection to them first, because obviously, people that don't know you and you've done nothing, very very hard, right? Yeah. I mean, but even for like even for me, I'm you know nearly forty. If I try and reach out to some big CEO of some company, he doesn't know me from Adam. He's not going to respond. Yeah. I wouldn't even try to be honest. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'd only go after someone that I like maybe kind of knew, because then they kind of are compelled to answer aren't they if you've got a second connection to them or you know some sort of mutual contact you know so your mutual yeah. contact thing is the way to do it i say but you know you, you've got to go up to them and just be confident and say look i do this i do that this is what i'm trying to achieve yeah i, th- I think again a few things off that it's like because like firstly like i surprisingly having done fuck relatively fuck all but to a certain niche of people done quite a lot whatever like I, I get a lot of messages on instagram now mainly off this podcast I, I and i like responding to them because because yeah i don't know you feel like you're helping people whatever but it's also the same for people at a certain level above me in, in the sure. chain but but the second point on that is currently i'm fundraising for this new brand that i've mentioned in the previous episode for the first time and, and i've been doing and very new to this process should have probably fucking spoke to you a lot more about it to be fair but um and i've been firstly yeah reaching out to a lot of people like in my network and having very productive conversations and meetings with them etc but then i've also just taken a piss a little bit and messaged a few fucking billionaires that i know in this space and obviously not how to reply but then there's been a few people sort of in the middle that i don't know at all that have sold businesses for eight nine figures in a similar space i know for a fact have sort of money that potentially you want to invest in and I've had a few replies of a few people sort of saying like very interested but you know don't know who you are blah 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 blah. and yeah it's, it's your point about even if you feel like you know no one the first contact is like I don't know your fucking uncle's friend that's he's probably mentioned you once of course and I, I suppose it starts with like if you're literally like 18 then the, like, like I was when I did the fucking placement the first thing is probably get a little bit better at what you're trying to do and then I think I've said in another podcast as well like probably after that is go and meet people that are your age that want to do similar things which is what I did when I was 19, 20, 21 particularly now 22 then get a friendship group of people that are doing similar shit and then the kind of the step beyond that is get good at the shit, the shit, the shit you're doing which for me was e-commerce I'm still working on it but I've done some stuff so now I have some track record mm. so now when I go to people that I've met along the way a few people who have made, you know, seven, eight figures selling big businesses and I've met along the way in, in whatever capacity that there's some actual credibility now. Like a few years into the game, I'm not 18 anymore, but I'm also not fucking 50 and know everyone. So then those people at that like next level are actually more accessible. Yeah. But also along the way, like I suppose just be make sure you actually have social skills social skills which you said is natural but actually to a lot of people and even more because of social media I feel like it's actually becoming more and more scarce I'm not saying I'm the fucking wizard at it but I I think I'm decent at it probably A naturally but B because I've met a lot of new people and through this podcast I'm forcing myself to do even more new people but there's so many people that I don't know fucking I know a few actually that like went to ridiculously good unis whatever but they have a, a fairly shit job and I'm convinced it's because they don't have any EQ amongst any of that IQ and they just can't speak to people. Mm. And at the end of the day, business and life is just people. Of course. Like really? Yeah. 
and and again I think because of the social media generation which is probably probably similar generation but particularly like the past five years and people that are coming into their like early 20s in the past five years like me it's like people hide behind a screen and forget that at the end of the day customers people potential partners investors whatever it is are just fucking people they're a biological being that's assisted by technology they're not replaced by technology do you know what I mean no exactly exactly so I think I think your social skills in general or your people skills improve as you get older in general right they do mm. you know when you're 18 you have more life experience yeah and you you can chat more but I agree with you I also think the giving back thing is interesting you touched on that so giving back is very important to me I like interns coming into the company they're usually kids of clients or kids of friends which I don't like so much um longer term I'd like to change that you know at at the businesses that I'm in that we aren't just doing you know it's not just nepotism all the time um Mm. because generally you don't find the best people from you know the fact that they're your clients kids we're happy to do that stuff as a favor for a week or two but the good ones aren't generally those they're the ones that actually want to work hard and, and and do something not just get something on their CV and bugger off to the next thing. Yeah. Um, but giving back's fun as well. Like it, it's great to be um, invited back. Like I've been invited back to my old school to talk to the sixth form. You know, I haven't gone because they tried to expel me like, a number of times when I went to that school. Excellent. They hated me. So now the fact that they want me to come back and give a talk, I'm like, well, I'm not sure I want to do that. Yeah, right? really. I'd probably rather go to the state school around the corner and do a talk. Yeah. Because you know? I know the next step will be that they want to send 10 of their kids to our companies every summer, you know? Whereas I'd probably rather have the state school kids that actually just want to work and do get a Joseph Franchi where I went. Yeah, exactly. So, normal boys in. so um, you know, um, the old boy nepotism club, you know, I've benefited from it hugely, so I'm not going to slate it completely, but it is about people who want to work hard and get on with it, not not getting a job because your old man or your uncle or your or your granddad did something, right? Yeah. Yeah, and another thing on networking as well, I was like, I had a few guests on actually, I won't name them, but we had like kind of a bit of a debate on this because they kind of viewed networking and they're both successful people funnily enough young people young guys but they almost view like networking when I brought it up as like some like weird like really forced like making friends process whereas I I don't know like maybe because of like LinkedIn culture these days and shit it's become this weird thing but like when I say networking I just mean fucking meeting people that's basically it and just meeting people and getting to know them and potentially working together yeah, and that like can it's be... It's not some forced, like, weird process. Exactly. You can, on, you can be on a train, you can be on a plane, you can be at a lunch, you could be at the rugby, you could be at the cricket, you could be at a concert, you could be in a restaurant, you, you know, you, you could be at a members club that your friends invited you to, couldn't you? I mean, there's all sorts of people all around that are interesting. So my view is, um, you know, you never dismiss anyone when you meet when you when you meet someone at a party you just you know house parties can be full of cool people aren't they doing mm. cool stuff yeah. you know um you never know where you're going to meet someone it's a bit like you never know where you're going to meet your wife or your, or your husband isn't it like you you kind of don't shut the door on anything or anyone always be like give them the time of day listen to them what are they up to you know yeah see where it takes you 
Yeah, I also think like the whole meeting new people thing, just by definition, but again, just because of social media is like way more scary than probably maybe it used to be, but also just like, it's quite nerve wracking because like I went to meet some potential investor actually on Friday last week in Soho house via another guy that I'd met through another guy that I'd met through a mate. So again, a classic example of just the fucking chain of people and you know, whatever, went to meet this guy, we had fucking drinks and I sort of pitched him on what I was doing, whatever. But then 20 minutes later, he said, oh, do you want to come fucking sneak into this Soho house party that I've been invited to by the owners of this agency? It was like Phantom Agency or something. And it was free fucking bar all night. So I said, yeah, cool. I go. I thought I'd be there for 20 minutes. Was there for like six hours. Ended up inviting four of my mates who also snuck in. By the time they came, you didn't have to sneak in. There's no one on the fucking door. But yeah, I must have, I think I actually made like a fucking iPhone notes page of like who I must follow up with because I met so many interesting people and and that's important to do as we've said like when you're that yeah. drunk you should write it down or you should oh, try so and make true. a date because otherwise you'll forget there was some you guy do. I met on the roof of fucking on the strand who was in Amsterdam and he was particularly interested in mushrooms and, and I wrote a note down because I knew I'd forget otherwise to follow up with him totally and I may yeah. never fucking speak to him again but you know I, I think and ironically as well there's a lot of sh- this shit on Twitter and like the whole money Twitter sphere, which I've got more into in the past few months. And it's like, there's a lot of people that think you should like never drink and be fucking teetotal and shit, but there is a lot of benefit if played correctly in knowing when to have a drink with the right people and the potential doors that opens. Cause it just everyone loosens up a bit. Cause if I'd yeah. not had a beer with that, that original guy at 6 PM, which I was a bit like, Oh fuck, I don't want to drink tonight. But then if I'd just gone home... Yeah, of course. I wouldn't have got to know him as well as I did, which was a decent amount, and everyone else that he introduced me to. No, absolutely. So it's it's knowing how to read, like, you know, the pros and cons of a social situation. That doesn't mean fucking go to the pub every night and just hang around with people that aren't doing certain shit, but do you know what I mean? It's a balance. Yeah, for sure. Particularly in a big city like London, which is, again, comes back to the point that I've said to a lot of people... I think if you can, and, and most people can, if they're willing to like live a certain way, you should move to a big city. Mm-hmm. If you're serious about you know trying to do something, because I just think the benefits of potential meeting people massively outweigh like the short term cost or whatever. Like rent's really high, blah blah blah. But just fucking, I don't know. We're so lucky to have London. Living a share oh. share a house with someone. Yeah, we're so lucky to have London. It's one of the greatest cities of the world definitely one of the great cities of the world you know yeah, it's yeah, safe definitely. it's secure it's civilized it's multicultural it's so interesting there's so much going on all the big business players are here you know all the big you know there's nothing that you want in london maybe apart from sunshine i mean it is <laughs> yeah but rich. that's unproductive to an yeah. extent so yeah for sure yeah so i, I always say to people I, get, I actually get quite a few dms on this saying i live at home with my parents and x place in the midlands whatever should i move to london i'm like well if you can if you can afford to which you can if you get a job anywhere basically mm. then you should yeah well as long as you're an hour from the city you're fine aren't you i mean yeah. you can afford to always afford to live an hour from the city yeah so yeah i, I just think it's super important to have access to the right people and then do with it what you will i suppose one thing i want to come on to um before we potentially wrap up soon, it's still like a fucking hour and four already to be fair. Um, it's just investing and all, all that side of thing. Yeah. Because 
I feel like my generation thinks of it. The only thing I think of investing wise is oh, I should fucking get. Into, I wish I got into Bitcoin in 2013, or I'm going to sell a business and then invest. And interested to get your take on it because I know you've got a finger in a few pies. Yeah, no. So as well as Morphe's, I've got four other investments um, that I'm actively involved with. Um, one of them's a big fund called Red Rice. I've given them some money. They're introduced. They're investing in all sorts of they're things. They're Castor investors. Castor is the big one, the big yeah. sports brand. Um, but on a day-to-day basis, I'm involved a lot more with the other three. Um, I'd say two are going well, and one's going less well. Um, but the the two exciting ones are Sherpa, which obviously you're um, involved with as well, which is the online education business, literally yeah. an online tuition business, and also Imagine Health, which is a mental wellness business literally psychotherapy for 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 people so you know two sectors which are booming with imagine health we've got we've got google as our main clients it's a really nice business already dropbox as well Um, we're talking to all sorts of other blue chips and you know we're looking to really ramp that business up we're looking to do a digital offering which means you can you know literally talk to a therapist online you know through an app which i think is very current a lot of people need it I was it. actually on one last night it's one called Mind Labs that raised yeah. a lot of money yeah there's I Mind Labs I messaged the founder better help replied to me yeah yeah so we um, the education business is interesting but yeah no. so my main job in those businesses is actually just doing the funding they're both quite cash hungry we're growing them we're trying to raise money um, or we have been raising money so yeah I've probably raised about a million pounds this year for the education business which has been quite you know interesting we've got maybe 15 shareholders now um it's exciting it's it's i find it a lot more interesting than just being the broker because i'm the owner you know mm. um and i'm excited about both those sectors I, th- I think the world's our oyster in both i think mental health and online education you know that they're two really good places to be yeah agreed yeah so it's completely different to the middleman brokering thing but the skill a lot of the skills are the same the raising money you know what's interesting for me is there are opportunities potentially to work more closely in different ways with those companies and that might be my next career it might be you know being managing one of those businesses rather than just being the investment director which is kind of where i am at the moment but it'd be amazing to be the chief exec of, of one of those things and grow it properly um, the experience is incredible, you know, especially when you've started it from day dot, literally you form the company and you've, you've done all that. The track record, if you get one of those to be successful, is going to be a great story, isn't it? Yeah, well, mental health, I guess, mental wellness is is the, the space my new brand is, is in. Yeah, so exactly. Fucking any potential angels watching, please message me. Email <laughs> is in the bio. Um, okay, few final questions before we wrap up then so you kind of touched on it already I was going to say like future plans going forward where do you see yourself going obviously still fucking very young relatively like yeah. in the grand scheme of things where would you like to um, be going next I'll carry on growing Morphos to the point where you know I hope we're doing 10 deals a year got a decent team it's, it's a cash cow business you know but interesting but ultimately i think my real passion lies with these startups you know trying to develop a number of those 
you know i i was saying to someone last night that maybe i'd like 10 of those but actually the advice i've been given is just focus on a couple don't overspread yourself because literally how many hours have you got in a week you know you mm. want to have a social life Less than you think you want to play you want to play sport you want to see your friends you, you want to have a girlfriend you, you know you can't you can't spread yourself so thin that they all start slipping through the cracks. So I think I've picked those two. I've maybe got capacity for one or two more and then I'll probably see how they go, you know, and hopefully in my mid forties, you know, I'll, I'll exit one or two of them and, and life might be good, right? Yeah. yeah well, life's exactly. good already, but life might be, you know, different. That's your phrase I've noticed. Um, <laughs> okay. Final cliche question before we wrap up then. Um, if you could give advice to yourself at age 18, what would it be? I guess in a life and business sense. Yeah. So, I mean, I wish I hadn't gone to uni. I wish I'd gone and got a proper job because uh, uni was a complete waste of time for me. I, I think if you go to a really good red brick, red brick university and get a top degree, it's fine. But to go to some basic uni and get a kind of crappy degree, I, I feel like that was a complete waste of my of my time and I know you agree with that um, yeah. I think the other thing was pers- on a personal front I got married far too young it didn't work out you know and that affects your business life big time when your personal life isn't going well it really takes you off the ball and I think that set me back several years in business terms it really distracted me in you know as it does so you know not going to uni not getting married I think were the main bits of advice I'd give myself. Um, And also, I think the third one, which is really important, and we've touched on it a lot today, is don't try and put too much pressure on yourself to be too successful too young. Because most people aren't. Most people don't make any money until they're 50 or 60. You know, this idea that we're all going to be multimillionaires in our 20s or even in our 30s is very rare. It's very uncommon you know it's it's unrealistic and be happy don't be rich you know it's kind of try and be both try and be both but you know don't imagine that just because you've got a few million in the bank Mm. that you're suddenly 10 times happier in my experience it brings a lot of complications as well and you know you should that should be your life you know prioritize being happy over anything don't just just wish for money yeah good advice now um yeah we'll wrap it up there i think been about nearly two hours actually jesus christ um hopefully that was i think a very yeah a a solid insight from more experience than most of our guests i suppose and not just specifically econ i think we covered a lot like deal making relationships networking just life i suppose as well um there's probably 20 other things we could have gone into actually which always happens but nearly two hours so I don't want to fucking drain the viewers energy but um, yeah I hope you enjoyed that one if you're enjoying the pod by the way yeah subscribe to the fucking pod down below let people know to, to also watch it it's on Spotify Apple Podcasts as well and trying to do an episode a week as I've said from the start which right now by episode 15 we are keeping up with um, an episode a week will be for, for at least a year I mean which would be fucking difficult but I'm working on it going to hire someone to start outreaching to fucking other people soon because I'm rinsing my entire network at the minute but yeah I hope you enjoyed the episode in summary um, if you did subscribe and let people know and we'll see you on the next one cheers for watching bye